I wasn't going to be judgmental, even though I worried about Olive, whether there were times when she had had a thwarted life, whether she was too passive and so on. But I didn't want to be censorious. I didn't see that as being my role. I saw my role as being responsive to her, respectful to her and her work, and somehow giving complexity to ordinariness, to just the daily detail, to the way that women live their lives then, to the kinds of opportunities or lack of opportunities that she had. That's Helen Ennis talking about photographer Olive Cotton and the broader question of how women artists reconcile domestic life with creativity. Hello, I'm Caroline Baum, and welcome to Life Sentences, the podcast about contemporary biography. Even if you don't know Cotton's work, you might recognize her black and white teacup ballet, shot in 1935, which became her most popular photograph with its clever play of light and shadow. A Life in Photography, Helen's acclaimed biography of photographer Olive Cotton, manages to make a quiet, unassuming life into a bigger story. As a feminist, Helen investigates how Olive establishes herself and develops both her work and her inner world, despite divorce, isolation and money worries. As she's by no means a household name, I began by asking Helen who Olive Cotton was. Well, Olive Cotton was actually one of our most important photographers, even though we didn't realise it for a long time. So she was born 1911 and then had this really long career right through the 20th century. So uh, she's someone who lived through tumultuous times in Australian history. Uh, but why, why she's of interest to us is because of her art photography in particular, which she produced from girlhood on, really, right until the end of her life. I'm interested that you say in your introduction that as a subject, Olive has surprisingly little weight. And I wondered what you meant about um, her when you said that, given that she is now recognised as a pioneering modernist. So what I found really curious when I started to do the research on Olive Cotton, and it's important to note that I met her, uh, so I did know her for a long time before I started to think that there was a biography I would be writing. So even in conversation, she was not someone who said a lot. So you didn't have a lot to go by when you were talking with her. She was very reserved, always interested in what you were doing. But she's not the kind of person, if you were talking with her, you wouldn't have had your notepad alongside you. You wouldn't have been taking down copious notes. She just wasn't like that. And then when it came to the documentation, it was the same sort of thing because she never really went on the public record, uh, especially in the early part of her life, the 30s and 40s, when she was doing such important work. So there weren't documents that you could go to to uh, actually read her opinion about different things. Wouldn't have even had to have been photography, could have been any kind of issues, things that were happening during the war, for example. So it meant then that on the public record there was very little and privately there wasn't a great deal. Now we all know that women's lives are often very rich in private material. It's often the letters and the diaries and all those intimate records, but Olive didn't leave a lot of those either. So that's what I meant by there wasn't a lot of substance for me to grapple with, not a lot of material documentation. You actually begin your narrative with a trunk on the veranda of Olive's home and with a photograph of it taken in this very dilapidated space on the veranda of Olive's old rural home. And I'm just wondering whether you can tell us why is that trunk important and what does it tell us about her? 
So I wrote this book backwards, which I know is a, quite a strange thing to do, but it meant that I didn't write that introduction almost until the end or very late in the piece. I finished off the back half well before I'd even got from the front half on. So I was grappling with how do we start the story of, of Olive Cotton's life and work. And the trunk came to me as a perfect metaphor. I was at Spring Forest, that's the property in uh, country New South Wales where she lived for a long time, and the trunk was there on the veranda of her old house. And just seeing it there in that state of dilapidation that you've mentioned suddenly came to me as a you know, really strong image. And I went over and I opened the trunk, which I'd never done before. Maybe I hadn't even noticed it before on previous visits. And when I opened the trunk, there were all sorts of things inside there, just in the higgledy-piggledy order. But there were prizes that she had won as a student. Uh, you know, she was a very talented girl, especially an English student, but very talented uh, music student as well. There were book prizes that had been awarded to her by her school. There were gifts from uh, her family, books. But there were also concert programs showing me that she'd been going to the very best concerts, you know, in Sydney during the 1930s. So I was fascinated to see that those things were there, that they'd never been integrated into her life in the main house because this was on the veranda of the old house where she had lived for a long time, not in her new house. And I guess part of it too for me is because I have worked so long in a curatorial capacity, I've met so many photographers and I've met so many men who have already organised their archive for people like me who come along, who are already authoring their own story and they don't really want you to have an opinion, they want it all documented and presented, you know, in the way that they would like. And here Olive just hadn't done that. So that for me was the metaphor too, that she wasn't fussed about trying to establish an order or a path for me to follow. Those things were, were there in a seemingly random way. But it's important to note that the photographs went in there. Once they had been, this old trunk was the actual sea trunk that she had loaded up when she left Sydney for her life, uh, her post-war life in country New South Wales. And at that point, photographs had been in there. But that sea trunk never went on an exotic voyage. It didn't go around the world to see all sorts of interesting places. It went from Sydney to this area just near Cowra. So it had, had a very modest journey, and yet it had its own incredibly rich story just by the th those things that were left in there. But they weren't documented by Olive. They were just by association with Olive, if you know what I mean. It shows, doesn't it, Helen, a kind of, and you hinted at that obliquely there, a kind of complete absence of ego and sentiment. Yes, and I was fascinated by that because um, often our artists, sure, when they're in the throes of working, they might not be uh, organising themselves so much, but there usually comes a point when they do organise their archives, as I've said. And Olive, certainly she made sure that her, her strongest photographs did come out. They went into public collections. But she was just... Uh, resigned enough or what I saw is um, that was her life philosophy that she wasn't precious about stuff that she wasn't going to tell the people who did come along like me this is how you must think of me this is the path this is the story that she would leave it to fate and I find that pretty interesting because we all have to think about what we leave behind she could have destroyed it if she wanted to, but she didn't. She left it there. And, yeah, so for me it was a fascinating metaphor. It said something about her whole approach to life and to work. 
Now, you say that you wrote the book backwards, in a sense, and you do also come at biography via an unusual route, which is the visual arts as a curator of photography. And you've integrated certain photographs into the book as kind of chapter interstices, if you like. Can you talk a little bit about the approach that you took and the set of photographs that you use as a spine to tell her life story? Yes, that's exactly right. They are the spine. So I wouldn't have written this book if Olive weren't a photographer and if I weren't a curator of photography. So that's how she came to me and why she was of interest to me, because her photographs are so compelling. Now, I've been looking at them for since the 1980s. It's a very long period of time. And I can say honestly that their beauty, their serenity, their complexity still draws me in. I felt they had a lot to say to me and I just had to go quiet and listen. That meant then originally I thought, I can't write about those photographs in a rather bland art historical or, uh, way because I wanted there to be a sense of immediacy as if I had the photographs with me and you as a reader could look at them. And fortunately, the publishers allowed the reproduction of those photographs alongside these short texts. But also... I didn't want the book to have a homogenous style, if you know what I mean. What I wanted was some parts of uh, the book, the chapters are quite historical in orientation, some are more about photography, some are more about Olive's life, some are more about gossip, you know, and are on less certain ground. So I needed those uh, single meditations on photography to do a very particular kind of work to remind us that she was a photographer, but to enable me to be more lyrical, more poetic while I was talking about these photographs and for them to have the presence as if you, the reader, me, the writer, were looking at Olive's work together. It was a kind of tripartite conversation. And, of course, physically she wasn't there, but her legacy, which is the photographs, were there with us. So it took me a long time to work out, okay, this book, this biography, could have this different texture inside it. And some chapters would be longer, and some might only be a page or two. And to get to that, I actually borrowed more from fiction in a way than your standard biographical or art historical text. I wanted there to be shifts in inside the book, things that would make you think, oh, I want to read what's happening to the next bit because where are we going to go here? And yet still coherent. It actually follows a chronology. It does, but you've got to overcome, it seems to me, two quite serious challenges. One is talking about photography without getting too technical because this is a book which is accessible for a general audience, but also just going back to, in a way, what the trunk symbolizes or represents, which is that, you know, Olive lived a quiet life. She was a reserved and private woman to whom not much happened. Mm. And so you have to construct a narrative where we are invested enough to care about this woman who, as you say, she goes nowhere. Mm. I mean, the big events of her life, you could say, are the fact that she she marries someone who goes on to become a very well-known photographer, Max Dupain, whom we're going to come to in a moment, and then she divorces him and she marries someone else. Yeah, and she has children. I think, I think that's right, and that's where, for me, the interest in writing a woman's story. Now, I'm a feminist. I wanted a feminist perspective, so it meant I came with certain 
ethical guidelines in a way that I'd written for myself. One was I wasn't going to be judgmental, even though I worried about Olive, whether there were times when she had had a thwarted life, whether she was too passive and so on. But I didn't want to be censorious. I didn't see that as being my role. I saw my role as being uh, responsive to her, respectful to her and her work, and somehow giving complexity to ordinariness, to just the daily detail, to the way that women live their lives then, to the kinds of opportunities or lack of opportunities that she had. So it was very important for me to try and make uh, something interesting out of something very, very ordinary. I mean, even to describe the kinds of meals that they ate, you know, that sometimes they ate rabbit and that they had a lot of pumpkin. I mean, they might sound so banal, but those are the sorts of concrete details, I think, that give you some sense then of, of, of how a woman, a creative woman, made her life. And especially in those years when she wasn't so active and so visible to us as a photographer. It was just really important to me. Whereas if we looked at someone like Max Dupain, who's got all his journey laid out on the public record, you know, there's a different kind of, of narrative. And, yeah, so that was one of the challenges, the, the gaps that Olive left, and then for me what to put in those gaps, how to make them interesting. But... I love watching, observing. I've always been fascinated by the dynamics of relationships, for example. I never saw Olive and, and Max together, even though I was in a gallery where they were together at the same time and a very important encounter took place. But I did see Olive from the mid-'80s on till her death interacting with her husband and with other people. So in those cases... I was the watcher, you know. I was uh, I was just not intervening particularly, but just observing. And from that, it meant that I could hopefully build some kind of narrative that's like a fictional narrative, as if she's the characters. And we've got this story, which is a very Australian story, and it is very much a woman's story of that time in the 20th century, and then drive it forward with gossip sometimes, with anecdote. Because I don't take the view that official documents are the most important. I don't have a hierarchical view that way. Sometimes something someone tells me can be way more important than anything that's on the official record because it'll break things open. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's how, out of the ordinariness, I tried to make something of interest. The book that it reminded me of, I guess, in terms of your sort of overarching kind of feminism as a guiding principle is Drusilla Majeska's Stravinsky's Lunch about mm. Stella Bowen and Grace Cossington-Smith, where you see, you know, one artist who stays home and one who goes off to see the world. Yeah. Um, so I, I wondered whether that was an important sort of text for you. I think um, Drusilla's work is like a touchstone for many of us and has been over a long period of time. But there's so many fabulous women biographers. So I looked a lot, people like Hilary Sperling, who've written on Matisse, for example, uh, Deirdre Bear, who's written on Simone de Beauvoir. So uh, Hermione Lee, who, you know, her really mammoth biographical efforts. When I'm writing, I cannot read other people's biographies because I'm too 
anxious, but also I'm too worried that I might take on their manner of writing, you know, their structure, their style, even their phrases. You never know what's going to happen. So while I'm in a writing phase, I read fiction. I read very little non-fiction. Certainly history I can read and the things I need as part of my secondary research, but very little uh, things that are going to keep me awake at night, you know, just filled with fear about how will I ever be able to write something as great as that or, you know, how it goes. I can completely understand that feeling, believe me. Um, You've mentioned a couple of times that obviously you met Olive, you knew her, you interacted with her professionally. So did you have a kind of reticence of your own, though, about placing yourself in the narrative and using the first-person voice? Because I think there's still a sense in biography that you are supposed to keep yourself out of the story, but you couldn't do that. No, that's right. And look, people do it brilliantly. David Marr, for example, with Patrick White and so on. So it's right, I had to make a decision. But I I didn't want to use my first person as revealing something about me. I just wanted to use my first person as an agent of intimacy to try and invite you into the narrative but as a way of revealing something about Olive Cotton and her work because it's it's biography but it's it's critical inquiry you know I'm trying to write something that reaches across time and is relevant to extract from Olive's story of her life and work things that might still be relevant to us now because that's a life well lived you know what are the the lessons there I suppose and that's quite a traditional conventional approach to biography as if it's instructional uh, so I think for me, that first person, I struggled with that. I originally tried to write the book with no first person. And after, I don't know, 10, 20, 30,000 words, I realised that was never going to work. I was a familiar in some senses, but I was always an outsider in others. And I had this revelatory moment where one time after Olive had died... And I had asked her daughter if I could go to the old house, which actually is the new house, but it's full of old stuff still. And when I went in there and no one else was there and I walked down the hallway and I went into the lounge room and there were boxes there, some things had been packed up by the family, there was a poster on the wall and it was a poster for a show that I'd curated of Olive's work. And there was a box And on the top of the box was a Christmas card and I opened it and it was a Christmas card I had sent her from my family. And so I realised as I was standing there inside that lounge room, I was actually part of a narrative. I'm not saying a familiar in the sense of an intimate, but I was built into that too and I had to recognise I'd had a role in constructing Olive for the public because I had curated shows on her and included her. Well, I had written on her before and uh, it was quite strange to me to realise, oh, here I am and here is, I, I'm standing in the heart of her house. And that's also the time when I did go down into her bedroom, which I would never have done while she was alive. And so, yeah, I realised I did have a particular kind of role and a particular kind of access that came from knowing her. Yes, and it's wonderful the way that card, in a sense, gave you permission. Yes, and permission, when I talked about my ethical guidelines, uh, the things I write for myself, permission is absolutely crucial, you know. Is it all right that I, I write this? What, what form do I feel the permission takes? And 
with Olive. Yes, that was really important that that I knew her professionally and personally. So let me ask you this, Helen, because I get a sense that you are very, very respectful of Olive. And yet, for example, you choose to tell us when it gets to the second marriage to um, Ross McInerney that they didn't share a bedroom. Yes. Why do you tell us that? Yeah. Uh, I have been asked that before about why that level of detail. And uh, I mentioned Deirdre Bear before, and that she, she helped me there because she says in writing a, a woman's life, like sometimes these details are important to give you some sense of the complexity in that of a subject's life. And, and it, because she is a photographer, how does this relate to her work? And for me, why that's important is because I was constructing a sense of her as someone who had a rich interior life. So maybe how she fostered that was in a way through solitude, solitude or solitariness within in the marriage too, keeping herself in her own room. Uh, and, of course, it harks back to Virginia Woolf, a room of one's own. So not sharing a bed and not having maybe that kind of intimacy with her husband is important for me to think, how do you keep a creative life going? You need to be maybe having that time of your great solitude. The reason I ask you that is because I wonder whether you think she was in some ways prudish. Um, she says that at university she was too prim and proper for anthropology. <laughs> she, you quote her as saying, you had to talk about all sorts of things and I couldn't bring myself to do it. Do you think there that she means sex? And do you think that she was in any way hung up about sex? Oh, well, look, that is a great question, uh, and I couldn't psychologise it, and I have no evidence. Uh, I think she did worry about being a nude subject, so uh, there's no doubt about that. And we do have to think, especially when she's a young woman in the 20s and 30s, there are very conventional mores. But she did move in pretty bohemian circles, and she was with people who did take lovers and so on. So... They seem to have been very comfortable with her too, they, not that they thought she was judging them, especially her friend Jean Lorraine, who seems like still, in a contemporary sense, really liberated woman. So I don't know in terms of Olive's own life, yes, how how that played out, but uh, you could certainly say with Max Dupain there was an erotic charge between him and his models and uh, when he photographs Olive, they are different kind of nudes. There's no doubt about that. She is more protective. They are more... When Dupain photographs Olive nude, there's no way that you could identify her. She is unknown. So he's very protective. And she's very protective too, I think, the way she holds her body and so on. Yes, you could almost say that the poses are coy. Yeah, you could, definitely. But whether coyness equals prudishness, I don't know. I think it would be... Hard to be sure about that. She wasn't someone who who uh, seemed interested in that sort of stuff. You know, for her, she was never risque, as far as I could tell. And she came from a really well-brought-up family, and they, they had very strong sense of moral purpose. So I think uh, that's important to know. But, yeah, she did have, obviously, a very passionate relationship with her second husband, Ross, during the war, when he would come back, those letters that were returned, you know, they were full of physical, sexual life, I think. 
Yes, but it's interesting that when I think about her photographs of nature, for example, her her evocation of nature is always wholesome. You know, there's nothing remotely, to me, there's nothing particularly obviously sensuous about the way she sees nature. I mean, she celebrates it, but she doesn't necessarily imbue it with a sensual quality. I think... That's a good observation. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, she looks for beauty, doesn't she? And, and in that, rather than disturbance. And, and maybe the sensuous and the erotic are, are disruptive. And that's not something really that you see in her photographs. Except some of the portraits of women, some of the women, especially Jean Lorraine, I think there are examples in the book, they are sexy women. And I think she... She responds to that, but she gives them much more than that. They're also women who have a big presence. That's why those portraits, I think, are wonderful. They're women who are complex. They're women who have rich lives, who seem big somehow in the frame and solid as well as sexy and compelling. Let's plunge right into the first marriage and the relationship that, in a sense, dominates the first half of her life and mm. shapes and determines a lot of her life professionally, which is with Max Dupain, her first husband. They first met when she was 13 and they became great friends. And I think that's some of the loveliest passages in the book are the descriptions of them going off together and taking photographs together in sand dunes and just hanging out together without all the complications that come with a romantic relationship. I think that's a really lovely friendship. There's no doubt about that. When they're both 13, they're both about to start high school, you know, such a sweet age. There's no doubt about that. They were already separately sharing a love of photography. So I think that was, it just starts off as a rather, uh, the relationship between Olive and Max just starts off as something that is quite friendly. It's not at all romantic I don't think initially because it's embedded in the family dynamics and you know the casualness of summer down at Newport and so on so I don't think it's very charged and it's only later but of course the fact that they are both interested in photography and that gives them passages to each other's homes because they've got the dark rooms there sometimes they obviously were processing the next together or the other would process them for them and then they'd get together and look at the prints it's um, I think really quite interesting that even uh, so young, they both knew what they wanted to do. Like they already did love photography and then they go on that journey together. But of course it divides in a gendered way because he becomes a professional photographer and she doesn't. And he's trying to get Olive, as we can see uh, from things he said now and then, to take her work more seriously because he could see that she was really, really talented. So what do you think his influence was on her as a photographer? I think initially, uh, the way I like to think of it is that it was collaborative. They just uh, were working equally as kids. And then I think what she gets from him is something which is really important. That's access to a professional life in photography because he's totally committed. He's got wonderful equipment and wonderful resources. So she's able to use his darkroom and that, of course, after hours because she's working there, but only as the studio assistant. She's not the photographer as well. So I think she sees 
someone uh, in her life who takes photography so seriously and they're looking at magazines together and so on. I think that's really important. But she is a very strong young woman and she is very sure of her own stance in photography. So even early on, their photographs look quite different. He does, in fact, go for more drama, for more use of black, something that's more theatrical. She goes for something that is quieter, more integrated, more harmonious. So I think even as teenagers, those views, those differences in their sensibilities, they're apparent. You mentioned before their friend Jean Lorraine. Now, uh, there's a bit of gold here, I think. She wrote a memoir which was not published called Chasing a Breeze. How did you come across that if it wasn't published? Fortunately, Olive's daughter, Sally McInerney, was of tremendous help to me throughout. So she had been in touch uh, with Jean Lorraine and her family. Jean Lorraine was a great friend of Olive's and of Max's, but the friendship persisted with Olive after Jean had gone to America. She had married again and her uh, husband was an American, so she lived in America. And it was a, a friendship that was still cultivated and Sally was able to get some of those things uh, from the family and then very kindly made them available to me. So that, that for me, is gold because that's first-person testimony. Uh, there were very few people, of course, by the time I started writing this biography, who knew Olive and Max and who had observed their relationship, the dynamic between them, but even had observed them working together or whatever. And there was one other, I fortunately was able to speak to a woman, Barbara Beck, who was the wife of a designer, Richard Beck, who was a great friend of Max Dupain's. And it was only a few months, I think, before she died, but she had been in the darkroom in the early 40s. So again, that gold of first-person testimony, and she's the one who said Max treated Olive like a piece of the furniture. Uh, she gave me that view of him taking her for granted, you see. This is much further into their uh, relationship. This is by the time they were beginning to fall apart. So uh, I was very lucky just to get a little bit of, of that, that testimony. I have to say, I don't know how intentional it is, Helen, but the way Max comes across in the book, he comes across as a workaholic, which I'm sure he wouldn't have denied, but also quite insensitive, even when they meet in later life and he sort of chides her and teases her um, and doesn't realise the terribly modest economic circumstances that she's struggling with that prevent her from having flasher equipment. He comes across as selfish, as having a big ego. I also feel at one point there's something that you quote where I think, hmm, not sure that your politics would have been my politics. And I wondered whether politics was something that he and Olive would have disagreed about, whether she would have been more inclined towards the left than he might have been, for example, possibly because of being influenced by Ross. But it doesn't seem to me at all surprising, really, that this marriage didn't last. And yet, it took a lot of courage for her as a young woman to divorce him and assert her independence, didn't it? It did. And look, I think what you've just outlined goes back to that question too about Ross and Olive and maybe not sharing a bed. Because I think that... Uh, there's no doubt that when Olive was involved with Max, incredibly good-looking fellow, charismatic, adored by his circle, that she also had to keep herself separate in, in some way. And so she made her decision to leave him, it seems, quite privately because 
the evidence uh, suggests that he was gobsmacked, just blindsided by her, her decision to go, even though he had treated her in a more brotherly way. He talks about that as if they were brother and sister rather than, you know, passionate lovers by this time. By the time maybe even they got married, that relationship had done its work. It's possible it was already exhausted. So I think that um, it's important to remember that they are young, they're still in their 20s when they, when they marry, and I do think that Max was a man in a hurry. But later on, they could have been uh, gossipy about each other when all the media interest was there, but they weren't. They were very discreet. And just recently I read something where Max talked about being a workaholic and saying basically uh, I was lousy in my first marriage. And I think that's pretty interesting because that is a recognition then that he wasn't a great husband and recognising that he ruined that marriage through overwork. But, of course, he ruined it through obviously other things too. I mean, he clearly was not able to respond to that sort of exquisite sensitivity, I think, that Olive Cotton had, her refinement, her reserve. It seems like that reserve really confounded him and uh, and bothered him in the end, as if he couldn't know her except in this, this slightly fraternal way. So I think uh, that their relationship went through very different phases. But what struck me is that at the end, there was still some amazing respect from Olive and enduring affection. She thought he was always um, a wonderful photographer. She never disputed that. And I think in his own self that Max Dupain um, did feel that too because he wrote that really insightful review of Olive's photographs in the mid-80s where I think he got it, you know. He paid her all due respect and could see what was so fine about her photography. Now, when it comes to her second husband, Ross, he comes across in the book as being a bit overbearing, um, more melancholy by temperament, perhaps prone to depression. He fails as a farmer. He's also handsome. He's got a strong personality. It's not as if there was any kind of rivalry between them in terms of competing as far as work is concerned. But he didn't make her life easy in any way. I mean, her life was so physically hard, so frugal. I mean, in the old house at Spring Farm, no electricity, no hot water, no dark room. Mm. I mean, it, it just sounds, at times, I have to say, it sounds pretty joyless. Mm. I think uh, that's the period I struggled with the most because I thought, why did Olive accept that like why did she move from a life in Sydney where she was in a rich cultural circle nurtured all the time by meeting all sorts of interesting people you know Sir William Dobell as we know the artist and his dog you know like just being able to be constantly stimulated to a life where there was really nothing like that around her but we have to remember I think one she wanted children and two she loved nature and so having grown up in Hornsby on 20 acres, beautiful, beautiful bush, I mean, really stunning. The family home, it really was beautiful environment, physical environment, natural environment. So for her to go to the country wasn't such a, a big leap. But also she did talk about just the endless busyness and the deadlines. And it was a very traumatic period in individuals' lives, the war, obviously, but also for Australian society. And she was one of those women who chose, I think, at that point, 
to be a mother and, and, and a wife. She was prepared to sort of be the homemaker. But they lived in a tent, you know, for the first period of their, of their married life and they didn't have those facilities. So her life was hard. But I think that at that point, that's not what she chose. She thought she was choosing a farming life and that they would set themselves up as farmers. And it's only as time played out and it became obvious that Ross was not going to be party to that kind of life as he did become more melancholic, maybe really deeply affected by what had happened during the war. Mm. Uh, maybe those men didn't talk about how changed they had been by their experiences. We don't know exactly what he saw when he went to Ambon. I mean, you know, he could have had a lot of trauma that wasn't uh, dealt with. His brother had then died in a, in a plane crash and so on. So it seems to me that he had a kind of sense of futility, maybe, that she didn't have. She still found nature abundance somehow and good and that her lot was to to be the breadwinner whether it was through teaching mass at Cowra High or or um, opening the photographic studio and just living in yeah not indulging themselves materially at all because that would have been materialistic and they they came to a view that seemed like an anti-materialistic anti-consumerist but you also don't get the sense of any regret or any resentment at the conditions that she had to endure or any sorrow about the fact that, you know, the studio in Cowra was a commercial studio where she was no longer photographing people like Eleanor Dark and Margaret Preston. You know, she was really, she was a jobbing photographer, you know, if someone wanted a passport photo. And at the same time, I'm interested in the fact that within the marriage, the dynamic of the marriage, she seems to have accepted a very traditional role. So, for example, there's a letter that you quote from where she says that when she sees her new name, Mrs. McInerney, she says, I get a nice feeling of belonging to you every time. Now, that is not um, a particularly liberated attitude. No, I think that's that's quite right. And the difference then, too, is... Ross does represent stability because Dupain, she felt, was fickle, you know. She really wanted, as, as I say, to have children, and I think the stability of Ross, as she understood it then, was part of it. Uh, over time, maybe that was much more questionable because he, I think he was quite needy and he took a huge amount of her energy. But what I like to think of is that, you see, her approach to her subject matter was very egalitarian or democratic so maybe in the end to photograph a girl from a family who lived near Cowra was not so different for her from photographing uh, a dancer with a ballet russe or you know a famous artist she approached people in in a very equal way she um, gave them you know the same kind of attention she didn't seem to draw that distinction herself between who was important and who was not I think that is part of her radicalism if you like that very democratic view of other people but also what did happen is that she did keep taking photographs and even late in life she and Ross they came to that agreement that he would drive her into town and she would stay in a motel for a couple of nights. Uh, she then didn't have to think about cooking the dinner or whatever. And there again, she's in her own room, isn't she? She's not having to worry about making the bed or do anything. That's happening, obviously, in the, in the motel by the motel stuff. And she's just using her dark room in her studio. So 
she never capitulated in that sense. I don't want to heroicise her. I don't like those biographies that end up sort of romanticising and heroicising their subject. But I, I did want to find in all of things that seem potentially relevant, you know, about endurance and perseverance, uh, about things to do with a creative life for women like me, you know, who have had children, who live in relationships. How is it that you manage to keep your inner life, your imagination stimulated? You know, what are the strategies you can use? Because I think we want to be as productive uh, as possible for as long as possible now. So for Olive still working in her 70s and 80s, that was important to me to try and bring to the reader's attention that even through those really difficult marriages, I think they were both difficult marriages to domineering men and I think there was a lot of just totally gendered behaviour, there is no doubt about that, and all the societal norms, you know, about what the women were meant to do. Even though Ross was a very capable cook, he expected Olive to keep cooking even though she wasn't much good at it. She did keep cooking. I mean, she could have said, okay, well, I won't do that at some point. So you never know, though, what are the kind of contractual and silent agreements that, that couples come to. But she, in her own way, kept her photographic dream or her dream of her own photography alive. But for me, the sadness of that is that it became disconnected from everyone else's. So she's working on in such isolation and at a time when art photography is, the whole history is being written and, you know, people are being celebrated and she gets celebrated too, but she wasn't embedded by then in any networks. She wasn't really aware of what was going on and I found that sad because it's not like suddenly she had a lot of books there on photography, which I wanted her to have, you know, but they, they weren't there. She was just dependent on what she, her own image bank and her own resources, like forced back into that kind of inner resilience. And so my conclusion is that you actually do need more than that to have a rich, creative life. You do need more connections, I think, to the outer world. It's too, too much of a burden, unless you're Anne Fairweather or someone like that, you know, alone on Braby Island. But even he, through his correspondence and the kinds of things that he was thinking about, was still, you know, in dialogue. So, yeah, I think Olive was very uh, adored by her local community. People were so proud of the photographs of them that she took, but she didn't have that larger sense of what was happening in art photography and, and in the world. Jumping forward, recognition comes to her later in life, just in time, really. I'm just wondering, did that recognition, when it arrived, bring her pleasure, or do you think it was just a question of bringing a certain amount of relief in that suddenly there was there was more income, you know, there was an interest in her work which could generate money? I think for Olive, when recognition came, there were a number of factors that gave her pleasure. And one was that her photographs then did go into public collections. I think that's really important. The National Gallery acquired very fine examples, but at the National Library, um, I gave New South Wales, you know, they can all show us what we call vintage olive prints, which are prints made around the time of the next. So the beautiful prints were safe. I think that was important. And, yes, she did have money, and that money did mean that she could keep going printing in the darkroom. I think that's important then that she felt she could abandon the commercial work. So that that was good. But the other thing is that what that recognition brought Olive was something probably quite unexpected. It was visitors. 
a lot of young women, a lot of photographers, researchers, they got in their car and they drove out to see her, by arrangement, of course, and she welcomed people with open arms. This is what I mean about her lightness, because I can remember sitting at the kitchen table with her and with an editor, in fact, from the National Library when we were working on a book in the mid-90s. She was so chuffed that we were just sitting there over a cup of tea and a scone, but she was uh, uh, so diffident. You know, she never big-noted herself in any way at all. That kind of stuff just wasn't important. There was nothing glamorous, nothing that I, I knew so well from, from working with other photographers late in their life who were who craving fame and recognition and the opportunity to put down their views. She just didn't have that. So I think she genuinely loved people coming to visit. They often photographed her or they showed her their photographs. And... She became like a, a sort of feminist archetype, believe it or not. Some, a woman photographer who had persisted against all the odds. Uh, a role model. Because there weren't, there weren't a lot of others when you were taking photographs in the, in the 70s and in the 80s who represented a history. But here she was, someone who had done amazing work in the 30s and was still active in her own way. And, yeah, I think she inspired a generation. Yeah, she was pleased by that attention. A Life in Photography is a very moving read because Olive is so modest and humble and so totally unconcerned with fame. Helen Annis's feminist sensibility takes the scraps of an ordinary life and stitches them together into a textured cloth of insights and perspectives about what it meant to be a female artist in mid-20th century Australia. It fills a gap in our cultural history of the modernist period, as seen through the eyes of a woman whose love of nature was the constant theme of her work, making it universal. Happily, her work has stood the test of time and found a new generation of admirers. Helen is now embarking on another photographic biography. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. The series is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Jennifer Macy. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. We'd love you to leave us a review if you enjoyed the show. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land, both past and present. Thank you.